This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sarah Ferguson, who is a professor, gynecologic oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Pedro. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for taking interest in our study. Of course. Uh, congratulations on this publication. Um, the topic of this podcast is going to be the discussion of the Centaur study, the assessment of sentinel lymph node biopsy versus lymphadenectomy for intermediate and high-grade endometrial cancer staging that was recently published in JAMA Surgery. So once again, obviously, congratulations for this uh, achievement. And um, very, very uh, timely and important topic. And uh, again, thank you for doing this study. So the, the, the first question I wanted to um, start off with is obviously sentinel lymph node has become standard um, in many institutions, both in actually in the low and the high risk endometrial cancer patients. But um, as I'm sure you know, as we go around uh, uh, in our conferences and, and giving talks and presentations, there are many who are not convinced that sentinel lymph node biopsy alone is safe in patients with high-risk disease. In other words, they'll say, yeah, sure, for the grade one, grade two, I'm okay with sentinel lymph node alone, but for the very high-risk patients, I have to do a lymphadenectomy. So obviously then brings me to uh, the question on this study. Why did you consider this was an important study to perform? Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And uh, I think that you summed it up. There was just so much discussion about uh, low-grade histology compared to high-grade histology um, amongst the people I worked with and internationally that it seemed like we had to really isolate this population and look at accuracy of the technique um, specifically in this population. I think that, you know, we all feel with endometrioid histology that it's probably more a systematic um, nodal event that we can predict and people felt more comfortable with sentinel lymph nodes. But I think with the higher, uh, high-grade histology, we can specifically serous or Kirchner's sarcoma or clear soil or mixed histologies, there's concern that there could be multiple pathways um, and isolated cardiac lymph nodes and not predictable with uh, sentinel lymph node technique. So I think that's really why we felt that this was a question that was not answered, and in Canada, um, uh, less people necessarily stage low-grade cancer for many reasons, not really part of probably what you want to talk about, but high-grade uh, cancers are definitely universally staged, and people were, reluctant, were, were worried about not doing the right thing for their patients, mm -hmm. and so I think it created an opportunity for us to um, look at this population specifically. Great. So there have been uh, three very previous landmark studies evaluating sentinel lymph node in, in, in endometrial cancer. Um, and certainly that I can uh, recall the Senti-Endo uh, trial, the, the FIRES, and um, one from our own uh, institution in conjunction with a number of other uh, institutions, the FILM uh, trial. So just uh, you know, j as, a, as a general um, overview, um, what is different about this trial from those uh, three uh, key landmark studies? Yeah, I think uh, 
So first of all, all of all three of those studies have added huge amount of information about sentinel link node technique and 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 they're all somewhat building blocks for the next study. Um, I think what's different about our study is first of all, the majority of patients, and we can talk about that later, why we initially had grade two and then amended, but the majority of our patients, over 80%, were high-grade histology on preoperative biopsy, as opposed to many of the others. It was a smaller proportion, I think maybe even only 50% in, um, in fire trial, so that's one difference. Our study that um, concentrated just on... Um, Included patients just using the most more modern nature of using ICG, which the film study showed was, or was a non inferiority study showed that was probably better than uh, traditional tracers. Okay. Um, and and I think finally, and we'll talk about this probably later, is that we didn't just evaluate the sentinel link node technique. So most studies look at detection rate, and then uh, those who don't map, they exclude and do the sensitivity and the performance characteristics, and those that map. And we felt clinically it made sense to test the sensitivity of the sentinel link node algorithm. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the things that are, are different, and I think they all add something and um, are really important. So the Sensi Endo, which was pivotal, used the tracers that we had at the time. They would be an amazing study. Mm -hmm. um, and the film study let us know that ICG is, really in, is okay in interstitial injection and better than other guys. And the FIRES was really looking at modern tracer. Um, and used a great reference standard to look at um, accuracy. So I think that they all were helpful, and ours is a little bit different and a little bit more um, a different population. So then now getting on to the primary um, outcome evaluation of your study, uh, what was your primary outcome? So we chose the primary outcome of the sensitivity of the sentinel node algorithm in detecting metastatic disease. So since our sensitivity is defined as a proportion of patients who were identified with no positive disease either by the sentinel link node itself, so if it mapped it was de detected in the sentinel link node uh, biopsy, or if it did not map in the reference standard pelvic lymphadenectomy, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just looking at the sentinel, those patients that mapped. And um, I think we felt that that was more important because it you know, that would, is really the standard that most of us uh, mm -hmm. work by, that if something does not map, it would be a complete link node dissection, uh, dissection to not miss po uh, possible metastatic disease. And so we thought that was a more clinically relevant um, yeah. way to define sensitivity. Great. And um, now what were the inclusion and the exclusion criteria for, for the Centaur study? So we wanted to uh, really capture the patients that we want to operate on, those, so the ones that are clinically stage one. We didn't mandate imaging, though the majority of patients in the study did have preoperative CT scans or MRIs. So clinical stage one, grade two endometrioid, uh, and then all high-grade histology, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the grade, we did at some point uh, decide to amend the protocol and exclude grade 2 endometrial uh, cancer. Yeah, and then uh, it, I wanted to ask you about that a little bit later. Um, but one, one of the things also, Sarah, that I wanted to ask, obviously, with any um, of these surgical uh, studies, there's always a question, well, you know, did, did 
each surgeon know how to do the procedure. So uh, did you have any specific criteria that each surgeon had to meet to participate in this study? Yeah, it's really important uh, with all surgical studies, as you know, <laughs> trying to <laughs> determine uh, is the, are we really testing, uh, evaluating a technique that people really know how to do and do well. So, and, but it's always matched with the um, other part of being practical and, um, and feasible. So, you know, we didn't have, um, you know, surgical videos or, uh, you know, but some people use to look at quality assurance within a surgical trial, which obviously um, there's benefits to that. But how? But we had done a huge quality initiative and published on this at our center uh, that uh, essentially all the uh, surgeons had participated in, uh, looking at peer mentorship instruction program uh, to look at our once-made techniques so that everyone was doing it in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. um, to ensure that we weren't really just testing people's learning curve, because obviously that would change, um, you know, the detection rate uh, in in, the, in our study. And I think with our new detection rate that we reported, that I think that we achieved that. Yeah, and Sarah, you you mentioned uh, previously that um, you you included uh, patients with uh, stage one, grade two, uh, and you know, some some might say, well that's not really an intermediate or high-risk patient. Um, why did you include those patients? And I believe you mentioned there was an amendment uh, made for these patients later on. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there was a lot of debate at the beginning. Some people felt uh, were concerned that these grade twos on final pathology on hysterectomy session would have a higher grade histology and uh, we'd be missing this opportunity. Uh, to include those patients. We did plan, and we'll talk about that probably later, but when we did our sample size calculation, we did really base it on nodal positivity rate of high-grade cancers. Um, and so we did about, we looked at our nodal rates um, and in the grade twos was just much lower than we had used for our power calculation that we felt <laughs> that this was gonna, you know, um, things. So we made an amendment based on that with our R&D and um, restricted it just to high grade, knowing that it would likely take us longer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always this balance, take us longer, cost us more money and, and whatnot to complete the study, but we, and we restricted it. And, you know, in the final end, we, uh, we had 126 high grade patients and 30 uh, uh, grade two and grade patients. Right. And then um, with regards to the algorithm, and uh, you alluded to a little bit earlier, um, who underwent a full lymphadenectomy and who did not? So ideally, everyone was supposed to have a full pelvic, uh, if they had a high-grade uh, histology, the intention was to only approach patients for consent who you would plan to do a full pelvic and parotid dissection. Mm. We all know, especially in the high-grade patients, there are patients who have too many medical comorbidities or other issues that we um, sometimes just want to remove the uterus and, and based on uterine factors. So there was a, um, that was part of the inclusion. So, and then for grade two, that they had to have a pelvic, a minimum of pelvic length node dissection as the reference standard with paradox nodes done at discretion of the surgeon if there was some finding. So we had 100% of the patients in the study had uh, a pelvic length node dissection and um, just over 80% of the high grade 
underwent a total transplant dissection, which is somewhat consistent with, you know, the FIRES trial in their high grade, when they looked at their high grade patients, about 75% of them underwent a total transplant dissection. I think this practice relation from time to time of surgery where things change or become difficult to do. Yeah. Now, before leaving some of the questions about the methods, I wanted to ask you, I understand the study was stopped early. What were the pre-specified criteria for stopping the study? Yeah, so we, you know, running these trials are challenging and they could, you know, they're not well funded. So we wanted to have a kind of pragmatic sample size design. So we used the funding sheet based design. And I think the FIRES trial used a similar design where we did a power calculation. And after so many events would evaluate whether it had adequate accuracy or was it too low and we should abandon, whether we had met a predetermined accuracy based on sensitivity or whether we were still, we didn't know and we would have to keep recruiting. So after 25 modal events, we did an analysis. And if we had less than 80% or 20 patients or less who were not identified, or less who were identified by the algorithm, then we would stop because that would have been less than 80%. If we had 24 of 25, which we had picked as 93% sensitivity, then we would stop because we felt we had met our primary outcome. And if we were in between those, then we would have to continue to a sample size of 230 patients. So fortunately, we were lucky. Only one was misclassified. So we were able to stop at 25 modal events. We ended up with 27 because two patients had had surgery and the results were not in by the time we did this analysis. So that's why we had 27 really positive patients in the final number. And then we were able to stop in June of 2019. Excellent. Now, Sarah, the results. What did you find in the CENTOR study? And also, I was wondering if you can also tell us the overall detection rate and the bilateral detection rate. So I think what was really reassuring is that this is similar. There's a consistent story with sentinel-like node biopsy and that we had a very high detection rate for patients. So 97% of our patients in the whole cohort had a sentinel-like node identified. And I think what's really important for us as clinicians is how often is that bilateral. And the bilaterality rate, I think the cessation in blue dye had been significantly lower. And we found that 78% of patients, we were able to find a sentinel node on both sides. And, you know, I had a patient specifically who I followed the algorithm, didn't map on one side, did a full node dissection, and she has this terrible lymphedema in one leg and a nice leg in the other side where we did the sentinel node. You know, we really do want to have as high a bilaterality rate as we can. And then our primary outcome, we found a sensitivity 96%, so a very low false negative rate in this population of less than 4%. So, again, I mean, that should be exceedingly reassuring for those that feel that they're going to be missing metastatic disease in this high-risk population. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, in our whole cohort, another way I think that's an easier way because people get, you know, mixed up with sensitivity and specificity, even some 
I do, though I think about it all the time, um, is that really only one patient in his cohort uh, was misclassified right. so that they did not have uh, their metastatic disease identified. And I think that is reassuring. I mean, obviously, 156 patients isn't 1,000 patients, um, but it's consistent with the uh, other data within this population. Yeah. Sarah, what, uh, what was the percentage of the full pelvic lymphadenectomy and the, and, and the percentage of patients that had a full periodic lymphadenectomy? Well, so the entire cohort had um, everyone, every patient had at least a pelvic lymphodissection as the reference standard to compare to. And in the high-grade population, so the 126 patients, I think just over 80% um, underwent an additional periodic lymphodissection <coughs> in addition okay. to the pelvic. Okay. And, so yeah, go ahead. No, I, I thinking, you know, so... It's, you know, ideally, you would definitely want 100% uh, of those patients with uh, um, high grade having a pelvic lymphodissection. As I stated earlier, I think it reflects what sometimes happens in the operating room when decisions have to be made. Um, and uh, but I think it's similar to other studies, prospective studies that have reported in, in this population. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Obviously, and, and it happens in all of these sentinel lymph node studies. Obviously, we're dealing with a population that often. One needs to put patient safety ahead of uh, of uh, achieving the, the intended full lymphadenectomy, be it pelvic or periodic, particularly in these very obese patients. Um, wanted to ask you, what was the overall rate of positive lymph nodes? And as a follow-up to that, what percentage of node-positive patients had metastatic disease only in the sentinel lymph node? Okay, so... Um Total cohort, 27 patients, so I think that's about 17% of the population had no positive disease. Uh, if you look at the grade 2, it was 10%, and if you look at the high-grade population, it was over 19%. So it was reassuring to us, first of all, that our sample size calculation is based on a good presumption, and we were really looking at the right population. Now, um, when we look at... Um, your second part of your question was how many uh, patients who were node positive had no positive disease just in the sentinel lymph node, and it was um, 50%. So 14 of the 27 patients, their metastatic disease was only in the sentinel lymph node. Okay, 15. Um, and, and Sarah, one of the other things that always comes up, and particularly in um, with regards to the added value of the ICG, is location of where you found these lymph nodes. And, and I was wondering if you had a percentage of patients that had positive lymph nodes that were outside of what we traditionally think as the boundaries where we usually find sentinel lymph nodes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of um, the ICG is that it really it really shows you where we should be doing our doing our surgery, even if we had to do a, a full node dissection, it's like a map to the uh, pelvis in real time. Mm -hmm. So two of the 27 patients, so almost 8%, had uh, lymph nodes uh, outside the traditional uh, boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, with eight, we included, obviously, parotid lymph nodes as part of the traditional uh, boundary. Um, one was parametral and one was kind of common sacral area, uh, medial common. And uh, yeah, so I think it um, highlights that 
one of the advantages that ITV Tracer is that it nicely leads you to where you need to to meet an LS nut. Okay. And um, now, with regards to the type of metastases, um, do you have information as to micrometastases versus isolated tumor cells? What what was it that you found when you found uh, these metastases? So there were um, so of the uh, patients with this uh, sentinel lymph node, the majority um, so, uh, were micromets or isolated tumor cells okay. um, when they were found in the sentinel lymph node only. So in those 14 patients that had, uh, um, so the 50% of patients who had sentinel lymph node only disease, they were all micromets or ICPs. So and now, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, I think this has been described in melanoma and breast, but it really does identify low volume disease. And what this means for endometrial cancer can be debated. And we obviously called that a positive uh, uh, lymph node in our study. Yeah, and actually, I was I was about to get onto that that question <laughs> as well, uh, which obviously brings me to to the next point. I always ask ask the the authors. You know, obviously, you, you have put together the study. These are the results. But what do you do in your practice? And, and I wanted to ask you, um, tell me about a patient that comes to see you with intermediate or high-risk disease. What's your approach to the recommendations for, for this patient uh, today? So there was a lot of discussion within our group at, um, at uh, Princess Margaret uh, about what we should do because I think until we had these results, a lot of my colleagues were concerned about more about this isolated cardiac lymph node that people describe. Mm -hmm. um, but we're a pretty cohesive group and once we had these results and it, you know, there was a lot of buy-in since they participated in the study, they did a lot of the cases. Um, and the fact that our group fairly strongly based on you know the abstract study and others that sent all lymph node, that lymph node is really for lymph node dissection whether it's full lymph node dissection or sent lymph node is is for staging and directing adjuvant therapy not as a therapeutic um, mm -hmm. procedure in itself um, that we could come up with a decision that we could abandon um, full lymph node dissection uh, routinely uh, incorporate sentinel lymph node biopsy and really uh, follow the algorithm. And I think that's what's really important in this is that there were uh, at least two of the 27 uh, patients with positive lymph nodes that did not map and were identified when we did our uh, lymph node dissection following the algorithm. Um, so they were not misclassified, um, but if people, you know, sometimes we get them and say, oh, well, it didn't map, but I think it's important in these high-grade patients um, because some, uh, two of those were actually in the cardiac region. So I think we have to um, follow the algorithm, and I think then people will feel more comfortable adopting it. So in our group, we've, we are now doing uh, for high-grade sentinel lymph node alone. I know that some patients with sentinel lymph node, if it maps in the pelvis, then they do cardiac lymph node dissection, and we've abandoned that as yeah. well. And then that, that's a follow-up question to that because I, I just just before this podcast, I uh, I was in clinic talking to one of my patients that I operated on about four weeks ago. Pathology came back, isolated tumor cells. So we had a very long discussion as to whether we provide treatment, but whether not uh, proceeding with treatment. Uh, what what do you do in your institution about the isolated tumor cells? Yeah, so 
Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to end with the two hardest questions I imagine. Um, so uh, I think that all of these cases we bring to, to our multidisciplinary conference to discuss. Um, I think it also depends on the histology or the molecular phenotype. And um, it's hard for many of us if they have a lot of other uterine factors to ignore them, even with endometriosis. So okay. if they have extensive LDSI and some of these other patterns, like MELS patterns and convulsion, mm -hmm. um, I know in breast and other disease sites, they are not considered positive, but we address it, and <laughs> sometimes they get adjuvant therapy, and sometimes they don't, yeah. and this is the problem with, with this. I think with other uh, higher-grade I think with low grade, there's a lot of withholding and looking at uterine factors uh, based on response data. But with high grade tumor, I think we look more and more at the molecular classification and uh, look at that to drive um, some decision making. But I don't know. What do you What do you guys do? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because after this, this is a, a patient with a. Uh, low risk. I mean, she had a uh, grade two with less than 50% invasion and she had uh, isolated tumor cells in two of the sentinel lymph nodes. So she elected for uh, radiation therapy um, after yeah. after uh, the, the discussion. Um, so now, Sarah, one last question. Um, given the results of your study, uh, landmark study also, um, do you see the need to perform a prospective randomized trial comparing sentinel lymph nodes only versus full lymphadenectomy, multi-institutional, only in high-risk endometrial cancer patients? And if so, would you enroll uh, patients in such a trial if that trial were to be available? Oh, wow. Such a hard question. And I think about this so much because, um, you know, a study like ours does not address that. Um, so I guess based on... Other studies, I really don't think that there's a therapeutic role of lymph node dissection, but it's a diagnostic role. Um, so I can see why there is this uh, reluctance to have a randomized control trial. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that we have been wrong about other things that we had pre uh, preconceived ideas about. So even in, you know, Looking at MIS <laughs> cervical versus endometrial, um, you know why would it be different? And it was. Um, so um, I think that I don't think it's an absolute no, but I guess that I, I have more questions um, about how you even design that because um, what is the who is the population? I, I think more and more we have to be not looking at simplistic low grade, high grade histology, but what's the molecular subgroup? And are they designed differently for each? And how, how would you do that? How would you ever recruit? And what are the arms? Yeah. node versus full pelvic lymph nodes, a full um, pelvic and pelvic lymph node dissection. I think this would be very um, challenging to uh, recruit to at this time. Um, and then provocative sentinel lymph node versus no lymph node dissection, and perhaps in certain uh, molecular subtypes, P53 abnormal, this would make sense to look at um, the value even as a diagnostic mm -hmm. if you are um, providing adjuvant therapy based on a molecular subtype and not stage based yeah. on cortex-free 
Um, so I have more questions than answer really to your <laughs> uh, to your question uh, because I do struggle with off, um, putting someone through a full pelvic and proto-transmitter dissection. But as someone who really believes in answering scientific questions and not having a preconceived idea of someone's kidneys, a strong, strong uh, rationale for the therapeutic benefit. So maybe an endometrioid, grade three endometrioid, there's a benefit because you would change what you would, maybe there is a therapeutic role in that, in that population. It's complicated now. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I think that um, in these discussions, there's always this concept of, you know, this still looming concept of uh, a therapeutic role for lymphadenectomy, and uh, th th there's continued evidence that the, the, the idea is to have an, a, a great diagnostic uh, strategy rather than a, a therapeutic role for, for lymphadenectomy. So um, I want to thank you for... Um, your time, obviously, I've learned a great deal, as always, uh, when I listen to you uh, talk. Um, congratulations again on a really great study. And you and your entire team should be uh, extremely uh, proud. Um, and thank you again for all the contributions you have made and continue to make to gynecologic oncology. Thank you, Pedro. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I just want to thank the entire University of Toronto, all three sites who participated, and all the patients who um, agreed uh, to participate in this trial. It's been it's been a really amazing experience. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>